it was a very feminine thing. You'd go to your mum if you were crying and dad would say, stop crying, off, go off to your mum. And you'd see your mum crying. You know, it's also not necessarily how we're raised, but also what we're seeing. I never, to this, I've never seen my dad cry. He's never opened up in that way, you know. I absolutely think that a big, big part of my fundamental understanding with my emotions was strongly linked to boys don't cry. Hello and welcome to Modern Men. On this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Sean Ruane. Now, Sean is the founder of Mind Data, a digital platform simplifying how therapists run their businesses and transforming their clients' experiences. In the episode, Sean opens up about his own experiences of therapy and suicidal depression, so a little trigger warning for you there, his views on masculinity and the importance of gratitude, as well as how he keeps on top of good habits. It's a really, really insightful episode with a truly lovely guy who deserves all the best for Mind Data, his brilliant business. Before we get started, it would mean the world if you could follow me on the socials so you can keep up to date with everything that I'm doing and everything that's going on with the podcast. So you can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Modern Men Podcast, on Twitter at George underscore BWH, and you can even connect with me or follow me on LinkedIn. The link is down below. One last thing, please follow and rate the podcast on your platform too, because that way, together we can expand the conversation around men's mental health. Without further ado, here is the episode with Sean Rowan. Enjoy. So, Sean, thank you for joining me on Modern Men today. First and foremost, how are you doing? Thanks, George. Yeah, I'm doing very well today. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, very, very well. Thanks. How are you? All good. Yeah, all good. Thank you for coming on. It's quite short notice. I literally, the day of recording, we'd spoken before, but um, on the day of recording, uh, literally just sent a message your way this morning and you very kindly spared some time to come and have have a conversation with me. So thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. No, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Perfect. Amazing. So if we could be having this conversation anywhere in the world right now, where would it be and why? This is one of those questions that I've been thinking about all day. I think, God, where would I want to be having a chat with George about all things mental health and stuff? My first kind of couple of answers, probably the, the classic pretentious answers like oh barcelona or something a nice bar on the side street in barcelona that would be great or on lake como or something you know Mm. um but do you know what i'm going to go for a bit of a deeper answer actually um and it's going to sound quite dark but you know this is get it all on the table i uh, when i was at university in a tiny little place called buckingham and i will come on to this but i suffered from really really bad suicidal depression when i was there and there was this old little graveyard and <laughs> this sounds really like gothic <laughs> there's a little peaceful graveyard uh, that was there and i often used to just take a walk just on my own uh, and sit on this little bench underneath a tree and i'd just sit there and just be with my thoughts and and things like that so I think that would be pretty appropriate if you and I went back there and just sat on that bench and just had this this heart-to-heart where I used to be having kind of heart-to-hearts with myself. So um, it's a bit of a deeper answer, George, but I would go to that little bench in that old graveyard <laughs> in Buckingham. I reckon that would be a pretty cool place for you and I to chat. 
100%. Yeah, this is what I really like about this question is like the variety of different answers that come up. You know, so, some of them have been kind of like, as you said, it's been kind of like Spain or or Jamaica, but it's been for specific reasons that are tied to that guest that I've, that I've been speaking to. And then I had one guest, Lewis Wedlock, who said he'd want to go 10 years in the future. And it's been like that. Oh, great it, answer. It, it, that's what I mean. It's kind of it's it's such an open question where at first, first you first hear it, you kind of think you do think of those kind of exotic places or like mm-hmm. like you said, Lake Como. I've been to Lake Como as well. It's probably my favorite place I've ever been. But yeah. I think my my personal answer, like I've I've honestly, I was having I was thinking the other day that I know my own answer to this question, um, and the answer was no. But I think you saying that has made me think like. There is a tiny little bit in in um, Stratford upon Avon, uh, which is where I'm from. Uh, it's basically like if you go through the town and down by the down by the river, you keep walking and keep walking past where most people go. Down by a place called the Greenway, which is like a big area where pe- a lot of people like walk and cycle. And mm-hmm. there's this tiny little bit over a bridge where you can literally like sit on a rock and you've got like the river flowing like literally like by your feet, and it's like. In the summer, the summer, I think it was probably during the COVID year. Um, I just used to kind of go for a walk there in the early morning, and it's just like, it's probably one of the most peaceful. I just used to sit and meditate, just sitting on a rock, and it was at that time, peak hippie sort of time in my life, um, <laughs> sitting there, and it's at that time no one else was there. Like it's one of those where if you go at the wrong time, you get kind of like teenagers drinking and stuff like that. But um, yeah. if you go at the right time, it's the perfect place. So. I think I think you've helped me kind of find my answer to that question as well, possibly oh, there. But, uh, but um, that's cool, George. Yeah. But yeah, I think um, that's a really nice answer. I think it's it's somewhere that's like meaningful to you or sort of symbolic um, in a certain way. So yeah, love yeah. the variety of of answers that I'm getting so far. Yeah. Um, I think we'll move on to like if you if if you kind of look back, what are your sort of first memories regarding mental health? Well, I think that in general, mental health wasn't really spoken about in my childhood necessarily. Um, And I think that had its repercussions as I got into my adulthood, to be honest. Um, No one ever really asked me, not necessarily how was I feeling? You know, that's quite common. How are you? You know, are you okay? Maybe. But no one ever asked me growing up, what are your feelings right now? What are your thoughts? Why are you feeling? that way that that's really I mean I'm sure that's not very common for for anybody to be honest it's not you know it's not just poor old Sean <laughs> but mm-hmm. it wasn't really something that kind of come up in my my childhood really it wasn't made that kind of self-awareness that wasn't around the first time that I really was was kind of put in the in the hot seat if you will was probably my first therapy session with my counselor uh, at university an amazing lady called Betty and I think it was in that room where she was saying things like, how are you? And and why? Why, why are you feeling that way, Sean? What are those feelings? Where have they come from? And it just kind of blew my mind to be like, oh, my God, yeah. Like, of course, we can question why and where they come from and how. And that I think in that tiny room, again, in Buckingham University, I reckon that was really where my, my chapter of this is what it means to be self-aware a degree of emotional intelligence, this whole crazy thing about mental health. I actually think that was the first time, and I was quite old. I mean, that was back in 2015, so I was like 26. So I think uh, that was really where my first foray into 
the world of mental health started, I think. Yeah, it's always really interesting to hear because, like, it's one of those things where I can I can look back at my my kind of childhood and things and pick things out and go, oh, yeah, like, that was an incident of kind of poor mental health or something like that, but it, it was never called that. I mean, judging by what you've just said, this pro- I, I'm 25, even though I kind of am bald and look about 30. Um, so there's about, 10, about 10-ish years, I guess, in between us. But yeah. um, it almost ten years, but it's kind of it, it doesn't sound too different to what I experienced in terms of it. It wasn't the norm. Like I, I started primary school kind of around the the turn of the century, and it it wasn't spoken about then, and it wasn't really spoken about. Like there were elements of it when I was at secondary school. I had, um, I I did get counselling when I was at secondary school, but it kind of wasn't. It, it was one of those things. It's almost like on the NHS where you feel like they want to kind of get rid of you after kind of three or four sessions because they're limited in terms of their resources and their time and things like that and it's it was not properly funded but um yeah I think it's one of those do you think when you kind of had that realization when you kind of thought um oh look mental health is a thing and like uh, it is a it, it can be a thing to kind of ask people how they feel or for people to ask me how they're feeling did you then, were you then able to kind of go back and look at previous incidents in your life and think, ah, oh, maybe that was a time where I kind of really needed somebody to ask me that question and kind of, were you then able to, because I, I feel like even though kind of mental health becoming a thing when I was in my teens, I can now look back prior to that and go, that was an incident of, or a kind of example of poor mental health. Can, can you do the same? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think that once you kind of cross that threshold, right, and and someone or something opens your eyes to this whole world of mental health, you do get that kind of awakening moment and you do look back. You're absolutely right and think, oh, my God, yeah, maybe that wasn't just anger. Maybe that was a cry for help or whatever in my younger years. So, yeah, I guess there are there are a couple of things that now, in retrospect, I can, I can understand a bit more. I think the first thing is this idea of... Um, self-love and something that I've always struggled with is self-forgiveness. There's a big theme within my therapy world and it wasn't one specific event in my childhood but as an older brother, I still do have a brother that's two years younger than me, um, this idea of forgiveness growing up was very much like right something went wrong, your brother comes up and you say look I'm sorry, the other brother says okay I forgive you, okay go on off you go play. So it was this idea of cause and action, and it's someone else's job to judge you, if you will, and say, right, you're worthy of kind of forgiveness, and and I forgive you, and then that releases us and allows us to carry on. Now, growing up with two kind of sometimes rowdy boys, I mean, I think there's there's nothing wrong with that at all. My mum and dad didn't do anything wrong there. They certainly didn't know any different, Um, and it it taught us some great lessons. But it was amazing to look back as a 26-year-old and Betty kind of opening my eyes to think, wow and no one ever kind of showed me the way as a child that actually you have the power to love yourself and forgive yourself and you know we can make mistakes and you don't necessarily need an external force to to kind of you know forgive forgive you so i think that was that was um that's one kind of standout theme not an example specifically um but the other one that i i very very clearly remember which was a specific incident and i was probably seven or eight um and i i was it sounds so stupid, but I was 
trying to tidy my my bedroom up we had bunk beds and we we're trying to like organize underneath the beds and all of our toys and stuff whatever and and, and for some reason i just got really angry and stressed uh, stress was a common thing in my younger years and to the point where i had this lovely picture and i probably in the picture i was two or three years old and it was christmas morning and god what would have been 1993 or whatever and uh i'm hugging my mum and you know presence around us and I got so frustrated and so angry that I ripped this picture to pieces and I instantly regretted it it broke my heart it still breaks my heart today because you know this is way before smartphones digital cameras or anything like that this was a kind of a Polaroid style picture and I look back at that incident now and think I obviously did not have any concept of being able to just voice my emotions, share my emotions, understand my emotions. It just boiled up and I just got so angry in this one instance. And I wasn't an angry child, but this one incident of just being so stressed. And that's one thing that I thought, you know, if I'd been taught the tools or given the tools when I was younger, I'd still have that picture now, you know? Yeah. It's it's funny how you kind of or one kind of memorizes these these times in their childhood or these times in whatever stage of their life and kind of links them to slightly larger kind of issues or, or struggles or kind of things that went on and w- would you say because obviously on this on this podcast we there is a kind of running theme across most of the episodes of masculinity as well mm. do you do you think that was down to you down to your gender in terms of the fact that you not not in terms of that you just in terms of society that you didn't have necessarily the tools to kind of show emotion and express your emotion in in other ways because i've had this conversation before with with previous guests about how kind of boys and men a lot of the time the only emotion that they kind of put across in a in a in a kind of noticeable way is kind of anger or stress rather than sadness or 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 kind of vulnerability or or, or anything else like that. Do you, do you think that played into it at all or or not? Yeah, definitely, George. I, absolutely. I, I think there was a big, big part of it. I mean, we were all raised, right? It, you know, I, I'm 33, so, you know, a little bit older than you, but generally the same kind of generation. And we were all grown up to, to have things like boys don't cry, man up, you know, um, grow a pair of balls, whatever it is. Um, and, and that subconscious kind of just constant reminders that just boys don't have emotions and I definitely was raised that way specifically as well my, my dad um, you know put us into judo put us into kickboxing from a young age played ice hockey which is a pretty aggressive sport at times and it was definitely encouraged to just being being aggressive quite literally fighting um, was my dad was really proud right that was that was really where you know that that pride came from and it was a very feminine thing. You'd go to your mum if you were crying and dad would say, stop crying, off, go off to your mum and you'd see your mum crying. You know, it's also not necessarily how we're raised, but also what we're seeing. I never, to this, I've never seen my dad cry. He's never opened up in that way, you know. So I absolutely think that a big, big part of my fundamental understanding with my emotions was strongly linked to boys don't cry. Absolutely, George, yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of link because I I feel like in in my childhood I don't feel like I really had that. But then, as in I I don't feel like my dad, you know, my dad had kind of typical male 
um, interest and things like that in terms of like football and kind of the films that he would watch and the stuff that he would mm-hmm. like. He had kind of typical what you would describe as kind of male interests. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the way that we were raised, I don't feel like uh, maybe it's because he he worked. He was kind of the breadwinner and I probably overall spent more time with my mum. That could have been part of it. But um yeah, I don't. I don't feel like I experienced that. Like I, but but yet still, I I think through society had similar kind of feelings in terms of like how I should be because I'm a male person. So I don't feel like it was my parents necessarily, but I think just a wider, uh, wider sort of societal thing, which I've spoken about multiple times with with so many guests so far um, on the podcast. So it's really interesting to see that that you kind of make that link as well and obviously it's not it's not really any fault of anybody's parents it's just how things have been for such a long time and i think generationally things change there's i think our our sort of generation and kind of you know when we have kids and things like that things might be slightly different because of kind of the way that society has moved on but it's yeah it's it's no fault of the parents it's just how how people were like and it's how a lot of people still are as well but um you know that there, there are certain elements of it that can kind of be be damaging but like i've always said on this podcast I, I i would never say that masculinity is a bad thing it's just perceptions of it and way and kind of ways that it's put across can be negative um and yeah so so i i think probably like a lot of people had very similar experiences to yourself. I'm trying to think like my interests. I think there were a fair few of my things that I was kind of pushed to do as a child. Like my parents weren't particularly pushy. It was one of the, cause I was a very sort of withdrawn child who like, if I didn't like something, I would kind of, I'd be like, I'm not doing it because it would cause me like, it would like make me cry. Like, and it, uh, I wouldn't do it. And, um, but I did do, I did like karate for a little bit, similar to yourself saying you did judo. So I did a little bit of that, but it was one of those where I enjoyed it for a bit and then I lost interest. And then I did football for a little bit, lost interest in that. It's always been a passion of mine, but playing it, I've never kind of got into on the same level. Uh, I did drumming and things like that as well. But then I also did like bird watching and stuff like that. We used to go bird watching as kids. So Mm -hmm. it's not, it's one of those where I think like, Every every family has these kind of things, I guess, that they're the kids are like pushed to do, and that can be a great indicator of kind of like, you know, it, they can, if they are these typical kind of like masculine things or not. And it's uh, it's really interesting to kind of hear hear that side of it. But um, I guess we we'll move on to your kind of journey since. I mean, what what kind of have you experienced since? Obviously, saying that you you started kind of with counselling and things at university. What have your have you have you had any kind of very intense um, experiences with mental health kind of since then? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess my if I, I guess if I rewind a little bit before me walking to that first therapy room with Betty, um, just to provide a bit of backdrop, I guess. Um, so my uh, younger brother Lee, um, he had a, a girlfriend from the age of nine or ten, amazingly, um, and they were real childhood sweethearts. And her name was Holly, and they mm. had their like eight or nine year anniversary at eighteen, nineteen, or something ridiculous. That's mad, um, yeah. It is, it is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's nice though, yeah. 
I like that. It is really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's kind of stuff out the 1950s cinema or something, isn't it? Like Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really nice and touching to see that that, that still exists. And, um, and so in February of 2014, Holly missed a party. It was, um, I don't know, maybe it was someone's, a friend's birthday party or something. Uh, she wasn't feeling very well. And, um, and basically, it, it turned out, after a couple of doctor visits, that she had a stage four glioblastoma, which is a, an incurable brain tumour, cancer. And by November, she passed away. And she was only 21. And I think that that was my... Firstly, that was the, the precursor to serious depression for me, because a bit like we were saying, uh, boys are strong and silent, that kind of thing. Uh, and you've got to be a rock for your family. And so I... I was um, strong and silent for my mum, who had kind of lost a bit of an adoptive daughter, if you will. And obviously my brother, I've been through like a very traumatic year and, you know, effectively nursing his 21-year-old girlfriend, you know, at the end of her life, heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. And I thought the right thing to do was be strong and silent and be there for my, my brother. And and that, that kind of like worked for a while because I survived it, but... There was something brewing inside when you're not having the space or you're not giving yourself the space to to be emotional because you think you're being strong. Um, and so that really was my my snapping point of what I now know was what was about to come. That was my my catalyst for kind of a before and after, if you will. Yeah, it's, yeah such a tragic incident. That's absolutely horrible. And I think it, a lot of the time... Things like that, yeah. I know, like, for example, like, for me, like, um, I've been through, like, a lot of loss kind of over the last kind of five years or so. And it's, yeah, it's it, it's something that it does bring that on you because, like, even still now, like, I think to myself kind of, like, am I... Because on a day-to-day basis, I am absolutely fine. Like, I feel fine with it. And I'm thinking to myself, is this still now me being strong and silent? Am I subconsciously ignoring kind of emotions or things like that because i feel all right but there's always that fear that something's going to creep back up um and it's going to hit you in a bigger way because at the moment it's only like short bursts and things like that so like that it is a frightening thing 100 percent. but um i think that is stuff like that and kind of incidents like that and big and, and trauma and kind of grief and things like that i think bring about periods of kind of depression for so many people and a lot of the time that can be the catalyst or the start of kind of an extended period of them feeling in you know feeling depressed and it's it's a horrible thing it's one of those things that's just you know it's just life but it doesn't make it any easier to have that mentality because you know nobody should kind of have to go through that at that sort of age and and um yeah, it's just yeah, it's it's a horrible, horrible thing, isn't it? So yeah, it's it a uh, yeah. something that you wouldn't would not wish on anybody, hundred percent. And um, yeah. but yeah, it's it's what what did that did that kind of inspire you in a way to be a little bit more involved within mental health? Because obviously you've kind of started up your own startup, if you will, um, <laughs> in in yeah. terms of something that is linked to mental health, which we're, we're going to get onto, I guess, now. Mm-hmm. Um, would you just like to kind of talk a little bit more about uh, Mind Data and kind of how that started and what the early stages were and and also kind of what you, what you actually do? 
Yeah, yeah, with pleasure, George. Yeah, so I guess um, to explain what Mind Data is, it comes down to that why and, and, and why I created it. And that actually has its link uh, in that post chapter of Holly dying. So if I rewind back to that early part of 2015, this is really where my world started to warp. And I'm now a big believer that you only realize that you were depressed for the first time in retrospect. You don't ever wake up in the storm and say, oh, I'm consciously depressed now and you know, I should get help. You just lose interest in the, the, the type of music or uh, I play drums as well. So, you know, not really getting oh, that nice. fun from the drums and, you know, the, the, the funny movies, the friends, you just don't want to see them so much. Um, and so, um, that's really where my world started to warp. And then I had started to plan my, my suicide with pills. I thought that was going to be the, the way to go. Uh, I don't think I had the confidence to um, do anything more uh, extreme. Uh, and so it was, it was kind of when I was looking online to buy pills and where I'd get them from and where I'd do it, I thought, mm. actually, this is the time where I need to reach out and get help. And so I, I had this amazing therapist called Betty at university. She saved my life. She changed my life. And that's where I um, made it my life's mission to improve the mental health of one million people around the world and pay that forward if I can. Basically, just something that I can always hang on to as a bigger goal that's bigger than me. Uh, and so I thought that's that's what I should be doing in life. That's probably my calling now. And so in late 2015, that's where I created that purpose. And ultimately, I'll take a pause, but like ultimately, that that is that's where mind data's roots. Uh, came from this how do I use my love and experience of building technology companies and how do I match that with my life's goal so I know we haven't spoken about mind data yet but that's my why for sure that's why I started it yeah that's, a, that's such an inspiring thing I think it's it's one of those things where I because I featured on a on a, another podcast but on there we kind of spoke about how I know obviously you're in a different area of kind of um, mental health to, to to what I am in terms of me doing a, the podcast and everything but everybody has that kind of shared goal of just trying to help more and more people make it easier to open uh, open up and have open conversations about mental health and like however much within the kind of my world within the podcasting and everything like that I, I want the podcast to do well and I do in a way want it to be listen to more than other mental health podcasts but yeah. at the same time we everybody has that shared goal and i don't think that's just across media or, or podcasts or or people who who do vlogs or, or tiktokers who do mental health stuff it's about everybody in the entire kind of mental health space so that's yeah such an inspiring thing i think that's there's obviously a, a very kind of setting your sights very high in terms of your goal there but it's something like you it, it's hard to stop being determined to do something like that because it's such a great thing and like you obviously enjoy doing it as well so yeah yeah would you be able to kind of explain exactly what it is that mind data does as a company yeah. in terms of because yeah. obviously i know that kind of using technology in order to um, improve mental health, improve therapy, things like that. What are the kind of specific things that you do kind of like on a daily basis and the company sort of offers? Yeah, absolutely. So um, basically, my data is something that will sit alongside you if you're going through some kind of counselling or, or therapy. So within that dynamic, there are obviously two people, you, the, the client or the patient, the person that needs help, and the other side of the table is your mental health professional, counsellor, therapist. So for the, the client or the patient, we've created a digital journal that enables you to track how you're feeling 
and why whenever you need to, right? Just pull your phone out and you can just track it on, on mind data. And what that will do is it will start to plot uh, a chart over time of your mood swings, your highs, your lows, things like that. And you can always go back and click on a low day and just pull up that journal entry as to why you were feeling that low and vice versa, the high days. So that starts to help kind of just get thoughts out onto the page uh, when you need it, where you need it, and become more self-aware of your triggers and highs and lows. And this insight is then shared with your mental health professional on their dashboard. So the, the one vision that I had was I would love to have walked into that room with Betty when I was really low and Betty say, Sean, it's really good to see you. I know you've had a tough week. Tuesday was hard because of this reason. And I know you had that little win on Thursday because you did that and I'm really proud of you for doing that. Did you want to start on those two points? And that way we're kind of into therapy, making the most of our time together and being proactive with, with some of my triggers. So that um, that's effectively what Mind Data does and, and, and for the mental health professional, we've then built tools such as secure, encrypted note-taking, scheduling, invoicing, all of that stuff to just help their, make their lives easier and uh, more secure with, with running their processes. So that's that kind of tech wrapper around the human-to-human therapy experience. That's incredible, yeah. That's one of those things I feel like I would benefit from in terms of I've done I've done therapy a couple of different times now. I'd say okay. this time last year I kind of, well, sort of December, January as in January last year and okay. the, the December before that, I had kind of like a really poor bout of mental health, walked out of a job um, and then turned back to therapy as well because I felt like I kind of like clicked into this mode of like, right, I have to get out of this. I have to go back into therapy because I'd done CBT before um, mm-hmm. on the NHS. Yeah. Which was, which was helpful. A lot of that was for, for sort of social anxiety and things like that rather than depression, which has hugely improved. So it, it definitely does work. But um, yeah, I think that's one thing that I really would have benefited from, from doing when I was speaking to my therapist because you pay such a lot of money if you do it privately to, yeah. to go and talk to a, a therapist. And it's such a horrible feeling when you walk out and you, you're like, oh, I really wish I'd said this. Oh, I really wish I'd said that. And there there isn't a kind of structured way to to track yourself through the week because it's almost like you sit down in that chair and it kind of everything that you've done in the week is kind of gone out of your head and you're like oh what what like actually how have i been this week and having that feeling of forgetting what you've done like i like i when i was doing therapy kind of about a year or so ago i was making notes throughout the week but it the if there was a better way to kind of track it and a better way to structure it rather than just sort of random notes here and there it's that's such a more helpful thing and i do think therapy when when it's done kind of in in the right way and it, it it's such a helpful tool like it's it's such an incredible yeah. kind of thing and i know we definitely sound like it kind of changed your life and it definitely has has changed my life and it's kind of given me tools that i wouldn't probably or 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 at least I I wouldn't have been able to pick up on my own because I didn't really know how to do that because we're not taught as as younger people we're not taught to deal with various mental health struggles or just even like minor things to do with our mental health so any way that can kind of elevate that and make that better is brilliant so yeah that's that's such a kind of like noble cause yeah and 100% like your goal I think no problem I think like 
you easily could help like loads and loads and loads of people with with an idea like that um where are you sort of at now with it what's the kind of current with regards to mind data where where are you at yeah so um basically a year ago i built a minimum viable product just kind of in in, in the bedroom to, to kind of uh, prove the concept and thankfully that proved the concept it you know it, the therapist that i put it in the hands of you know it really did transform the, the the way they did therapy and the, the depth of relationship they had with their, their clients. Uh, and so I quit my job last year, put my life savings into building a proper version by some really smart people, far smarter than I, to build a proper end-to-end -end encrypted, all the bells and whistles kind of version of mind data. And that's now finished. And we are in the process of running a pilot with uh, a university. Um, and in talks with another one. I won't say names just yet because it's uh, probably mm. unfair on them for me to give it away. But mm. uh, with two universities, um, we are in the very early stages of um, getting approval for an NHS uh, proof of concept. And um, also looking at the application within schools as well. So um, we are we're kind of making really good headway with understanding how this technology can be used in different settings. And from a business perspective, I'm going through pre-seed funding. So in, in the startup world, that's the first round of funding. So we're raising 150,000 that can be put into to kind of growing this, testing this, marketing the the uh, the thing. So. This, uh, this next 12 months will be a real kind of make or break for, for mind data. And, and so far, it's definitely looking more like a make than a break. It's, um, you know, really kind of having a lot of success, thankfully, in, in all of the different professionals that we're, we're, we're exposing it to. So, yeah, hopefully that helps explain wh where we're at at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad, like, it's more make than break, like, because... It deserves to be kind of put in front of the right people, and it sounds like it sounds like you're doing just that. So, fingers crossed, it can only only kind of get bigger and bigger because I think it's something that the world needs. Definitely, definitely, kind of yeah. help a lot of things and elevate the whole therapy situation and kind of just make things a little bit more streamlined and a little bit better to just just better. I guess yeah. is it is the easy way of putting it. Thank you. No worries. So I think we'll we'll kind of switch across to the final two questions of the episode so yeah is there one resource that you would recommend to the people listening that helps with your mental health so it could be a podcast it could be a book it could be a tv series it could be li literally anything that just kind of you turn to and it doesn't have to be mental health related it could just be something that helps you personally it's such a, you know, I've been trying to prepare for this one, George, and <laughs> I, I cannot think, and, and this is a rubbish answer for you, but I cannot think of any one particular thing. I've mm. got a handful of things, if, if that's okay to go through lightly, kind of two or three things, if that helps. Yeah, sure. I'm pretty sure a couple of guests before have had kind of like two two or three things, because okay, it, yeah. it is really, really hard to like <laughs> narrow it down, because... Yeah, yeah. It's it's good that we all have so many kind of like little things that we can turn to when we're yeah. not feeling great. But yeah, f yeah. feel free. Yeah, yeah. Have, um, thanks. Yeah, feel free. Yeah, thanks, George. Well, I'll start with one, and and if I had to choose just one, it would be this. It would be um, gratitude journaling. So um, basically, the one thing that I found when I was depressed is that I got lost in my thoughts and negative, and there were so many amazing supportive people around me friends my girlfriend at the time family they were all there wanting to help and i just couldn't see it but i think if i had had more of a habit of, of gratitude journaling like i do now i'd have been far more conscious of it so 
every morning uh, with a cup of coffee, write down 10 things, people, places, experiences that I'm grateful for. And it just helps keep me anchored into reminding that there, there are plenty of things to live for, uh, you know, regardless of anything else, you know, be consciously. I think that's the key here because I think if you asked any random person, are you grateful for your, your wife, your mum, your, your, your job, whatever it might be, I think 99% of people would say, absolutely, I'm grateful. But I think it would be a very different answer if you said, but when were you last consciously grateful, not passively, mm. consciously grateful for these people or things? And again, I was one of them, granted, but most people would probably say, oh, that's a good point, actually. I can't remember if I've ever been consciously grateful for having my mum or my brother or, you know, my, my, my health, my arms and legs, whatever it is. So I think that if I had to choose one, that would be the thing, gratitude journaling. That would be the number one. Yeah, that is with this. The second guest that we had on Aaron Bretman, he, he said that journaling was a huge part of his kind of like evolution in terms of understanding himself better and kind of mm. knowing himself better and i think it's it's one of those things that i i'm so bad at keeping as an actual habit because it's yeah. it's you kind of I, i've started doing it and then stopped doing it and then started doing it but it's something that i really want to implement in my life again so like mm. uh, yeah i think in terms of i might get myself a journal because um, i'm one of those people where i i, I think if there's if there's structure to it and I've got a page that literally guides me and tells me exactly what I need to write mm -hmm. in what section, I'm more yeah. likely to do it than if I just have like, like, like literally for, for my job, I have a, a pad that says to-do list on it. And I don't think I would have used it if it hadn't, hadn't specifically been a to-do list. Like, oh, I think there's almost like something weird in my head where like, it has to be, it, it's the same thing with like, because I go to the gym and like my brother, when he's back from uni, he doesn't go to the gym. He exercises at home. And he always says to me, why don't you exercise at home? And I'm like, I have to have everything perfect to be able to stick with this habit. Do you know what I mean? Like I have to yeah. be in the right environment uh, and have the right kind of exact resources that I need. Yeah. I've just always yeah. been one of those people, but, um, yeah. Totally with you on that, George. Sorry to put in. I, I no, totally right. agree with you. All of that structure, structure, structure. Yeah. Um, I strongly suspect that I have some kind of form of ADD, I think. Um, I'm so easily distracted. And Same. the only way that I've managed to stick to some kind, and it's very patchy, but some kind of um, habit is attaching things with things. So in my, my morning routine is like I wake up, go down, feed the dog, and then I make coffee and I have my coffee whilst journaling. And they, they're just kind of connected and they, they keep each other accountable. Uh, if you were the weird thing to keep each other accountable. But it's, mm. if I now sit down with my morning coffee at you know, 7, 6.30 in the morning and I'm sitting down and not journaling, it kind of feels like I'm forgetting something. So kind mm. of for me, mentally pairing those things really helps. The gym is exactly the same for me as well. I could never work out at home. I really struggled in the, the pandemic. <laughs> Couldn't do it. Yeah, like it's a weird one. I don't know if you've read Atomic Habits by James Clear. Like it's such a... Yes, it, yes. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah. I'm still in the process. I haven't actually finished the whole whole thing start to finish. But it's it's kind of like a bit of a seminal book, I guess, within kind of like mental health and, and wellness and stuff like that. And he talks about, I can't think of the term that he uses, but he talks about that specifically where like if you're trying to build a new habit, if you pair it with an existing habit, it makes it, that's one way that you can make it easier. I.e. kind of you saying that like you associate your journaling with the coffee in the morning. Yeah. That can help. Like so I, I might try and do that myself because I kind of like don't really have a set thing that I do when I sit down and kind of have coffee in the morning or have 
breakfast or something. I don't have like a set thing. I will kind of either, you know, check check through something on my phone or watch like a YouTube video or something. But it's it's not if I can do something more focused that benefits myself a little bit more, then that can only be a good thing. So maybe maybe that's a little tip that I can kind of pick up. Maybe I'll try try all this. So yeah. um if you did, did you want to share a couple of your your other resources as well? Because yes, I know the question yeah. is one, but what? Who doesn't want more resources to to try out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, with pleasure. So that that's to, uh, one thing I do. Uh, a book that absolutely changed my life uh, mid mid depression was the Science of Getting Rich by Wallace D. Wattles. I think he uh, he wrote it in the early 1900s i mean very very you know old book probably well yeah 100 years old now god but the science mm. of getting rich by wallace d wattles it's basically a philosophy um on um i mean getting rich financially uh but the principles are, are were so crucial to me changing the way i looked at things my self-talk the things that i dwelled on i guess it's kind of become now in the modern day a bit more like the law of attraction which i know it probably put a lot of people off so it's very hippie and obviously people can make their own judgments but certainly that philosophy that way of thinking seriously changed my life and it's a book that i always return to quite regularly actually um and the final book um, is uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Um, it is very, like, obviously stoic, but um, the amount of nuggets that I just find in there time and time again just really stick with me. And there's one quote from there uh, that, that I think of quite regularly, and it's this idea of um, why we do good deeds in, in life. And, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but he basically compares our lives as a, a a vine, a grapevine, and as the vine grows, it produces grapes uh, and then keeps on growing. And, and he said, your good deeds in life should be like the vine bearing its grape fruit, its fruit, right, the grapes. Um, it, just do it and move on. Don't do it for any kind of return on investment. Don't dwell on it. Don't celebrate it. Just do it because it's part of your being and you move on with your life. And and I think that's something that like really sticks with me of just trying to do good deeds where you can and just not expect anything in return, no recognition, no return on investment, just do them for the sake of being part of your being. So that's just one example of the, the really cool nuggets in Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, really useful. Like that's something that um, I, I can definitely agree with in terms of I, I remember hearing kind of like, I think it was, I think it was actually Russell Brand years ago a few years ago he said something that stuck with me in terms of you know if you're if he feels low one of the ways he makes himself feel better is to do something nice for someone else and i think i'd never thought of that before but it does make you feel better in yourself to know that you've done that and it is it's yeah it's just it's kind of like a very powerful tool and obviously you can feel if you're feeling quite low you can you can feel quite bitter and you can feel like you're in a state where you don't necessarily want to help other people because it's easy to turn inwards but doing the opposite is actually a really useful tool and i think i've almost the, the more that i've i feel like without kind of you know bigging myself up to up too much i feel like since kind of becoming more understanding of my mental health i think i've become a nicer person and the person Amazing. not that i was a horrible person before but i think i've become consciously more of a nicer person and and a more a kind of kinder person like my, my partner always tells me that i'm too nice like i know that's a typical thing that like uh, a lot a lot of like 
guys get in terms of like from women saying like, oh no, he's too nice. But yes, she yeah, she's yeah. she's stuck around, so I can't, it can't be too bad. But, <laughs> Absolutely, um, yeah. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a bad thing being being too nice. I mean, obviously no, there's never. there's there's times there's incidents where you have to kind of stand up for yourself or yeah, yeah. or like I'm not saying just be a pushover because that's a totally different thing. But yeah. like I think yeah, there's a lot to be said for being like a nice person because I do yeah. think people treat you the same or are more likely to treat you the same if you if you act in that way yeah so yeah <laughs> yeah a, lo- a lot of it's kind of crossed over because I, f- I feel like there's been a lot of kind of great advice in in what you've just said in that section but the final question is <laughs> is there one tip that you would give to modern men yes and it's something i wish i had known when i was suffering from those early days of depression it's a reminder, really. You are not a burden. Um, I think that's really, really important. As a, as a man, there's more strength in in opening up, being vulnerable, and I think that we have a duty to ourselves, those people around us, and our our future children. Or, you know, sons, daughters. It doesn't matter. But if we stick on the the kind of theme of of, of men, shall we say, that next generation of men that we show them that it's okay to be emotionally open and not closed up. So that all stems from recognising that you're not a burden to anybody. In fact, you're going to grow closer to people by opening up to them. So you are not a burden. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. And I think we've all been there. Like I've been one of those people who has felt like a burden multiple times whenever I've kind of gone through... I think it's natural when when you go through struggles, especially because as as a man, a lot of the time it is harder to open up and it's harder to yeah. kind of, it's not easy for anybody, but as a man, because of the kind of way that society has kind of led us to believe we should act, it's not yeah. not a simple thing. But um, you do feel kind of like, oh, am I just annoying people by being depressed or by being anxious? Like, is this just like a pain, a pain in the ass for the people around me? And you know hopefully if you're surrounded by the right people then they don't see it like that because they almost like feel your pain as well and they're there to help you and they're there to kind of help pull you through it along with you trying to kind of pull yourself out of it at the same time and I think that's such a powerful thing because I, I have been there many times myself where I've kind of even if I've you know been in a relationship with a partner or something and I've had that mindset of being like why would you why do you want to be with me and oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that that comes from I, I feel like I've luckily I've grown and have a higher opinion of myself now um, the, in the place that I currently am and mm. haven't had those thoughts for quite a long time. And kind of because I, I think I value myself higher than I used to in terms of now that I've learned about myself and kind of looked inwardly a little bit more. Um, it's it's kind of helped me to realize who I am as a person and what I'm worth and what i deserve as a person so that's really really powerful because no no one that is 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 such a horrible feeling to feel like you're kind of weighing people down or you're annoying people or you're being a burden like so i think yeah anybody who can kind of help perpetuate that the idea that no one is and like help help other people and the people around them not feel like that because Mm -hmm. it's such an easy um trap to fall into so yeah Yeah. that's It's an incredible tip. That's a, that's a brilliant tip. And um, I think that basically concludes the episode. So, Sean, I'd just like to say thank you for coming on. It's been a brilliant, brilliant conversation. And I'm sure I've got a lot out of it. I have. And I'm sure hopefully you have as well. And 
everybody listening at home, in the car, on their walk, wherever they are, in the gym, hopefully they've had the exact same and they've managed to get a kind of... It's been one of those where I, I already know at the end of this episode, like there's so many kind of moments and clippable bits and quotes and things like that that I can pull out. So I'm really looking forward to editing. Thank you, Joel. No, pleasure's all mine. Thank you ever so much for reaching out and inviting me on. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. So really enjoyed it. Thanks. Amazing. Cheers. I'll speak to you soon. Take care, George. Bye.